The scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 4, verse 17 through 32, and you can find it on page 6 in your bulletins. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful for their own hands that maybe do have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every other form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Buenos días. La lectura esta mañana viene de Efesios, capítulo 4, versículos 17 al 32. Así que les digo esto y les insisto en el Señor. No vivan más con pensamientos frívolos como los paganos, a causa de la ignorancia que los domina y por la dureza de su corazón. Estos tienen oscurecido el entendimiento y están alejados de la vida que proviene de Dios. Han perdido toda vergüenza, se han entregado a la inmoralidad y no se sacian de cometer toda clase de actos indecentes. No fue esta la enseñanza que ustedes recibieron acerca de Cristo, si de veras se les habló y enseñó de Jesús según la verdad que está en Él. Con respecto a la vida que antes llevaban, se les enseñó que debían quitarse el ropaje de la vieja naturaleza, la cual está corrompida por los deseos engañosos. Ser renovados en la actitud de su mente y ponerse el ropaje de la nueva naturaleza, creada la imagen de Dios en verdadera justicia y santidad. Por lo tanto, dejando la mentira, hable cada uno a su prójimo con la verdad, porque todos somos miembros de un mismo cuerpo. Si se enojan, no pequen. No dejen que el sol se ponga estando aún enojados, ni den cabida al diablo. El que robaba, que no robe más, sino que trabaje honradamente con las manos para tener que compartir con los necesitados. Eviten toda conversación obscena, por el contrario, que sus palabras contribuyan a la necesaria edificación 
y sean de bendición para quienes escuchan. No agravien al Espíritu Santo de Dios, con el cual fueron sellados para el día de la redención. Abandonen toda amargura, ira y enojo, gritos y calumnias, y toda forma de malicia. Más bien, sean bondadosos y compasivos unos con otros, y perdónense mutuamente, así como Dios los perdonó a ustedes en Cristo. Thanks, Ariel and Oscar. Let's dive in and let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time to look at your word, and uh, we pray that your words will come alive with power, with truth, with conviction. And we pray that you bless uh, both uh, the speaking and sharing of your word from my mouth, from my life, as well as the hearing and receiving of your word from all of us, uh, myself included. Uh, we do need your help, and we trust that you'll give it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, one thing Facebook has done for me, I don't know about you, is it has put me back in touch with old friends from high school and from college. And one of the comments I'll get from time to time from folks as they either browse through my pictures or eventually in due time see me in person is, uh, you haven't changed at all. And I don't know what to make of that comment. I hope I don't still uh, look and appear and feel like the immature 16-year-old uh, that I was when they last saw me. Of course, I can't complain. Uh, I don't know if I'd prefer them to look at me and say, whoa, you've changed. Is that better? I don't know. But we do change. We all do. In life and in time, Change is inevitable, whether we like it or not. But that's actually not the case with spiritual change. Change in Christ. Um, it's not inevitable. It's not automatic. In fact, it requires the grace and the power of God, which is why the Apostle Paul here in this section addresses the topic of the way that people grow and change in Christ, the way that we grow and change in Christ. And so we're just going to dive in right now on this topic of change and looking at this in two halves. First, principles of change that we can grab and mine out of what Paul says. And then secondly, practices of change. What does it actually look like in the details, concrete details of our lives? First, a couple principles of change. And then secondly, different practices of change. So first, principle number one that we see here is that change is possible. Change is possible really quickly. Throughout the passage, you notice Paul is making a comparison. He's comparing what he calls in verse 22, the Ephesians' former way of life and their present way of life, which in Paul, uh, verse 20 he describes as the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And again, in verse 22, he says, you were taught to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And you were taught, verse 24, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, he's contrasting the old you with the new you that's being refashioned in Jesus. They changed Because they encountered God in Jesus Christ, they changed, and so can you and I. 
Friends, have you given up on the possibility that God can really change you? Change that one fatal flaw in your character. Change that one habit that just won't break in your life. Maybe you've tried before. Change is possible. God can do it. This passage encourages us, don't you dare give up on hope. It's not easy, but by the power of God's spirit, change is possible. Principle number two, not only is change possible, change is a command. It needs to happen. Uh, this passage takes it a step further. See, notice in verse 17 how Paul says, So I tell you this and suggest it in the Lord. Or uh, uh, just want to throw it out there before you in the Lord. No, he says, I insist on it in the Lord. He commands it. If the grace of God is alive in your life, change must happen. If a tree's root is planted in water, it must grow. It will bear fruit. After all, the good news of grace is this, that God loves you so much, he accepts you as you are. In all your sin, in all your brokenness, in all your filth, not requiring you to clean yourself up before you are welcomed by him, but he takes you in all your mess and loves you as a sinner saved by grace. God loves you so much, he accepts you as you are, but this too is good news. God loves you too much to leave you as you are. Amen. He loves you too much to leave you in your filth and your addiction and your brokenness and your suicidal impulses and your sin. Change is a command, but God gives grace to fulfill this enterprise of change. So there too, don't you dare give up on hope. God gives you grace to make these changes because he is more committed to your growth and change than you and I ever will be. How do you know he gave the blood of his son, the life of his most treasured possession, his own son himself, so that you and I could be given life and to be changed by his life. Number three, change is glorious. When Paul talks about the nature of the change that Jesus builds into our lives, he uses the language of creation. He says in verse 24 that he's given us the new self that is being created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. In other words, sometimes we can wonder, man, uh, you know, God is going to mess me up and he's going to change me in ways that I'm not sure I want to be changed. And he's going to fiddle with my life. And I'm not sure I want to go through that. Paul is reminding us, God is giving you in change the deepest desires of your heart to be glorious. 
to be the person that you were actually truly created to be. Because you were made to be like God. You were made to be loving and humble and generous and giving and full of joy and lacking depression and functioning out of your gifts and contributing to this world and creating amazing things to the worship of God and the good of your neighbor. That's how you were created to be. But every one of us has been damaged and disfigured by sin. That's the story of the Bible. It kind of like, you know, that photo distortion app that you'll find on smartphones these days. You take a, a picture of someone and you kind of, it twists your face around and makes your nose all funky and gives you 4,000 eyes and turn your head upside down. And uh, that's sort of what we've become because of evil and sin in our lives. We're selfish, we're depressed and arrogant and impatient, but now in Jesus God is giving back to you a new self recreated in Jesus. A new you, a humble version of you. Can you imagine it? A loving version, a self-sacrificing version of yourself. A generous you, a grateful you. Talk about a miracle. A patient you which is, in fact, the real you. Because you were made to be like God. You got off track by your sin. And now God is restoring you in Jesus to be more like God. How glorious is that? Have you thought about that? That thing that you're holding back and saying, God, don't touch this in my life. Don't change that. I like it the way it is. Do you know what you're withholding yourself from? Glory. Number four, change starts on the inside. Change starts inside. Change is possible. Change is a command. Change is glorious. Change starts inside. Look, how do we normally try to make personal change happen? We start on the outside. We tackle behavior by the front door. We blame our outward circumstances. We say the reason why I am so self-centered is because of the polar vortex. Uh, I can't care for people or think about other people below 20 degrees. If only it were warmer, I would be more like Jesus. Or we try to change ourselves or change other people by forcing behavior. Isn't that why we try to change by turning up the volume, yelling at ourselves or yelling at our children or yelling at our spouse or our roommates or our friends, thinking that'll do the trick. Do you understand, friends? The Bible never says, do you want to grow and change? Well, here's what you need to do or what your friends need to do. Here it is. Try a little harder. Never says it that way. How do you grow from living out of your old self to living out of your new self? Where does change start? Paul here points us to the truth is that it starts 
On the inside, 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 again and again, Paul points underneath our surface behavior as the beginning point of all true change. In verse 17, he points out the futility of our thinking. In verse 18, darkened in our understanding, we behave wrongly. Uh, he talks about the old self as being ignorant due to the hardening of our hearts. Our hearts are messed up. Uh, having lost all sensitivity, we've given ourselves over to sensuality. He talks about the old self being corrupted in verse 22 by its deceitful desires. Do you hear the language? A big fat arrow pointing right in here and not just out here or out there. Here's the principle. Behavior change starts on the inside because we do what we desire and our way of living is steered by our way of thinking. Is your deepest desire to win the approval of other people? Well, I tell you how much that'll affect your actions and your behaviors because you will speak to people and act with people in a way only to win their approval and to avoid their disapproval. Are you always thinking and telling yourself, I deserve some peace and quiet? I promise you, you will begin then to act as though you hate your children and act as though you hate those who interrupt your life and make it more chaotic, even when they have real needs. If you say to yourself all the time, this is my stuff and my hard-earned money, I promise you, you will not live a generous life because of the things that are embedded in what Paul calls the attitudes of your mind. Change starts right in here... Which is why he also says here in this section of Paul's letter that change, therefore, begins with the gospel of Jesus. Because we need our, our thoughts about ourselves and our thoughts about other people changed. We need our desires to be turned inside out. And in verse 20, Paul says that everything changed for the Ephesians when they heard about Christ and were taught in him. When they started to take in the story of the God of all power who laid it all down and made himself powerless, even dying on a Roman cross. A God who had every right to condemn you and me and yet didn't. That out of love and mercy forgave and is willing to forgive because Jesus paid the price that we should have paid. A God who says, I want to restore you to a healed self-image. That you are loved by me. And that you, if you would have that security and assurance about yourself, thinking as one who is beloved and cared for and dignified by the glory of God, that you might actually start living differently and believing differently about yourself and other people and about God. Change starts, therefore, not only inside, but with the gospel of Jesus penetrating our inside with the grace of God. 
That when we look at the corrupted parts of ourselves, that we actually start to say, look, that, that's not my truest desire. That's not my truest thought. That's not really me. I am a new creation. I am new in Jesus. And now I'm changing and becoming who I really, truly am. Principles of change that Paul gives us. What does this look like in actual practice and life? Practices of change. And Paul gives us all these concrete details. And he uses this metaphor of clothing, putting off and putting on. He's saying when, when you come to Christ, it, it's like you become a whole new you, put, taking off your filthy garments and putting on brand new, clean, radiant ones. And so now act like you've been made new because you, in fact, have been. Put off your sinful and selfish desires because God already has put them off in Christ. Put on the newness of life because God already has put those things on. And what are they? Four quick things. Number one, putting off falsehood and putting on truth. Verse 25, therefore, Paul says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Stop lying. (laughs) You know, and there are so many ways we do this. It might not sound like an outright lie. The way that we twist the truth, the way that we gently and skillfully lead people to believe something that is not fully True, partially, maybe mostly true, but almost always for our own benefit. The way in which we break our promises without blinking, you know, that's a form of lying as well. Not fulfilling your commitments. There's so many ways we intentionally deceive each other by pretending to be something we're actually not. Man, I'm guilty of this. How about you? Pretending like you know more than you do whether if it's sports statistics or knowledge in a particular field, pretending you know people when you don't, pretending you're accomplished or that you've accomplished things that you haven't, whether if it's pretending you uh, know or have accomplished things before your friends or if you've accomplished something that you want to put on a job application. Put off falsehood and put on truthful speech. And when Paul says speaking truthfully, you notice he's talking about it mostly in the context of the Christian community. We are members of one body, he says. In other words, he's reminding us of the importance of having honest, humble, loving, but challenging conversations with one another. That we actually tell the truth about each other when we're screwing up. We long to be that sort of community here at Grace Meridian Hill. That when you see someone that's making shipwreck of their lives, or you notice that someone is making unhealthy choices, or that they're destroying another person, that we're actually able to come to them humbly and after prayer to say, hey, you know, can we, can we talk? Um... You know, what you're doing, it concerns me Uh, to say, hey, hey, can I can I give you some feedback? You know, may I have permission 
to say something. The, the way you talked to that cab driver earlier was pretty disrespectful. Can we talk about that? Uh, or the relationship that you have with your boyfriend. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem healthy to me. Can we talk about that? Of course, it requires being fair. It requires giving people the benefit of the doubt. It requires being gentle as Christ has been gentle with me, not slamming them with a list of 14 ways they've failed miserably in this life. You know, gentle selection of the things that we approach people with. It requires in love, always doing it for their good and not just to get stuff off your chest. But can we be a truth-telling community as well as one that puts off falsehood and deception? Number two, number two, putting off bitterness and putting on forgiveness. Putting off bitterness and putting on forgiveness. Look at verse 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. First of all, notice that verse 26 doesn't say never be angry. It doesn't say that. It's actually quoting Psalm 4, which reads in verse 26, in your anger, do not sin or more literally, actually be angry yet do not sin, which tells us that there is a kind of anger that is not sinful. The Bible describes it as holy anger, righteous indignation that mirrors the heart of God that does in fact burn against injustice and sin in this world. Yes, there is a lot of anger That is sinful. Most of our anger is, verse 31 catalogs a few other words to describe it. Bitterness, anger, rage, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. But how should you respond to the horrors of human slavery? By shrugging your shoulders with indifference? No. By feeling indignation. For the ways that God's image is being crushed in the lives of people. How should you feel about the horrors of selfishness in your own heart with righteous indignation? Sometimes is right to be angry. But then, but don't go home now and tell a friend. You know, God told me this morning that I ought to subject you to my verbal abuse. I've been waiting for this moment uh, for a long time. Uh, I've been waiting for that sermon uh, for a long time, in fact, to give me permission to say these things uh, before we start to use this to justify all of our temper tantrums. Understand that the main point of this verse is actually to point out how easily anger that even starts righteously ends sinfully. How easily that happens. That's why Paul says in verse 26, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry and don't give the devil a foothold. In other words, when we let it linger, anger, even righteous anger becomes sinful over time. So don't let it linger in your hearts. 
And here's why. Because when we're angry, even rightfully so, we become so vulnerable to a whole host of other sins. When I'm angry, I'm at my most self-righteous. I'm very good at critiquing the other person and defending myself. Uh, I'm very good in my anger at being judgmental, at being dishonest, at accusing, at retaliating. This is the nature of it. You see, Paul is talking about the dangers of bitterness, the danger of letting anger fester, unprocessed and undealt with. Yes, this is a call to forgiveness and reconciliation. Verse 32 says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Cancel each other's debts because you won't ever even start to approximate how much God has actually forgiven you. You've been absolved of a multi-gazillion dollar spiritual debt So maybe you can find the spiritual wealth within you to let people off for the spiritual or moral hundred bucks that they owe you. It costs you something. It does. And you might feel it. But you are wealthy to forgive. It is a call to forgiveness. But actually here, more importantly, it's a call to process. It's a call to work through our anger. In the original text of Psalm 4, before King David writes those words, in your anger, do not sin, he says, or after actually, he says, when you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Instead of just letting your anger linger, will you give attention to it and say, hold on a second, why am I so ticked off? What is triggering this rage in me? Why was that thing so important that when it got snatched from me, I became a maniac or I imploded with quiet, seething rage, which is the way some of us deal with anger, not always explosively, but sometimes also implosively. Friends, with whom have you let your anger linger too long? Has bitterness given way to other sins? uh, Where you can trace back to just sourness in your life and in your relationships, even sin. That you can trace back to resentment that was forged a long time ago. And you have not on your bed searched your hearts and been silent. Number three, putting off stealing and putting on serving. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Of course, Paul here is talking about uh, taking, uh, putting off the habits of taking something that belongs to someone else. It might be their money or their possessions. Uh, It might be stealing someone's time. Uh, the way an employer might oppress workers or the way employees might cut corners and essentially rob from their employer. Uh, 
piracy or theft of intellectual property or gouging prices as a small business owner or fudging on your taxes or all the different ways in which we can talk about the way in which we steal. But Paul says, instead, you need to put on service. Using your hands not to take, but to give. And this leads us to just this radical mindset that I don't know that we think about and put on sufficiently and often enough. Uh, That he says that you would start to work and use your energies and your gifts and your time. Not just so that you can benefit, but so that other people can benefit. So, for example, that if you work for pay, not all of us do, but if you work for pay, have you ever thought of working hard, not simply to earn a living and not simply to pay the bills or to pay for a fun getaway, but to work hard enough that you might have enough to give away? To... Gain enough that you might have enough to share with others. To consider receiving and giving to the kingdom, to the poor, to your friends and neighbors. Living a life of gospel-motivated generosity is the call. Which, of course, includes what we do with our hands and our gifts and our lives and our time, even without pay. Being generous with who I am and what I do. Serving others that they may have something to share with those in need. Do we, friends, live our lives primarily as takers or as givers? Paul says, every one of us should have a testimony that I used to, more or less, used to rob others for my good. Uh, But now, because of Jesus, I give to others for their good. Number four, and lastly, we'll finish up here, putting off words that tear down and putting on words that build up. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that they may benefit those who listen. He's talking about deleting from our conversations and our talk words that tear people down and instead adding to our conversations the sort of talk that builds people up. That builds people up. Comforting words, encouraging words. It doesn't just mean nice words. The call here isn't just for all of us to speak more like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons or to simply uh, sound more like a Hallmark card in our speech. Uh, The idea is to actually build people up, even with occasionally provocative and challenging words that spur on love and faith and action. We talked about that earlier with truthful speech. He says, put away unwholesome talk, which literally means rotten words. And it doesn't just mean eliminating, you know, uh, how many F-bombs do you drop in a week? 
Not just talking about swearing or putting away four-letter words, that sort of thing. He's talking about destructive speech that tear people down. If we could just focus it on this, how about being critical of others in the things that we say? Putting away words that make people feel small or make people feel inadequate. Putting away words that nitpick with no generosity and no benefit of the doubt, but incisively take apart a person with no hope for change in the future, but just say, you know, it just stinks and you stink. And the way that we communicate that constantly. Paul wants to give us an alternative to this sort of criticism and habitually critical speech. Wholesome, edifying, upbuilding words, he says, literally, that it may give grace to those who listen. Your speech is, by the Spirit of God, a vehicle of God's grace pouring into people's lives. Who this week do you need to grace with upbuilding speech? All the details of our lives, we can't even start to know what God has in store for us in changing us. Changing our relationships, changing our words, changing our hearts, changing the way that we forgive, changing the way that we relate to the truth and to lies and to deception and to our possessions and to our work and to our gifts and to the people in our homes and the people on our blocks and people all around us. God sees fit to change us by his grace. He calls us to it more than that. He himself is committed to it in Jesus. What might that start to look like this coming week, friends? Let's pray. God, we give ourselves to you asking that you would come and change us from the inside out by the power of our own experience of Jesus making us into the glorious image of your Son. It's an exciting thing that you promised to do. We look forward to how you will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together and sing.